those involved in LGBTQIA+, they are not the enemy. They're the mission field. Jesus says in Matthew 13, the enemy is the devil. He's the one who's enslaved them just like he once enslaved us. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi there, I'm Bill Wright. How should believers engage the issue of those wrestling with gender identity? With respectful affirmation? Cold indifference? Or full rejection, perhaps? Or does the Bible offer a better way? Well, today Tom has part nine of his series titled Trending Versus Truth. The Bible clearly teaches that God created human beings with two genders, male and female. However, for reasons you'll discover today, many individuals struggle with feeling misgendered, being same-sex attracted, often with depression and anxiety due to gender identity issues. The question is, how does the Bible respond to those who are struggling? Do you or someone you know struggle with gender or sexual identity issues? And if so, what does the Bible say you should do? Let's join our teacher to find out on The Word Unleashed. Today we come to the third crucial fact about gender theory, and that is the cultural expressions. How is this trending? How is our culture's rejection of the biblical view of sex and gender practically demonstrating itself? Well, there's several ways. Let's walk through them together. First of all, this expresses itself in the desire or effort to adopt the physical characteristics and gender role of the opposite biological sex. Sometimes it's just a desire in the heart. Other times that desire is acted upon, but its goal is to demonstrate the physical characteristics and to assume the gender role of the opposite biological sex to the one in which you were born. Now sometimes this happens by downplaying created sexual distinctions and just pursuing androgyny. In other words, there's not an active attempt to look like the opposite sex. Instead, there is a watering down of the differences between male and female with a desire for there to be this sort of this oneness, this androgynous sort of look and appearance. That's very popular in our culture. But often, this particular expression includes an individual's deliberate choice of hair length and style, particular clothing, actions, ways of speaking, and sometimes even hormone, hormone therapy and surgery to appear like the opposite sex. In other words, it's not just pursuing a sort of androgynous look, it's an, a desire and effort to pass off as the opposite sex. Now, sadly, these choices often lead to such things as anxiety, depression, addiction, and even thoughts of self-harm and suicide. Why is that? Because it's impossible to change your biological sex. Listen, you cannot change the reality of who God has made you. Hormones can alter male or female appearance and some external expressions. Surgery can offer, excuse me, can alter sexual structures, 
But you cannot change two things. You cannot change your reproductive capacities, and you cannot change, more importantly, the chromosomes that mark almost every cell in your body as either male or female. That simply cannot be changed. So what does the Bible say about trying to alter your sexual appearance? Clearly, not everything that's at our disposal today was at the disposal of people in the biblical times, but there are several ways this was attempted then. I just want to point you to one. It's in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, it says this, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on a woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to Yahweh your God. Abomination, the, the Hebrew word, simply means they are repugnant to God. They are, they're something that God finds extremely distasteful. Why? Because He made male and female. He made you who you are. And the effort and desire to be something other than He made you is, is a direct affront to God Himself. And so, by the way, this verse is not saying that, you know, men wear jeans so women shouldn't wear jeans. That's kind of how sometimes it was illustrated when I was growing up. It's not what it's saying. This verse is saying you don't deliberately try to, to arrange yourself, your clothing, your hair, and everything else to appear like the opposite sex. That's the point. That's one expression. A second expression of this, this issue in our culture is sexual involvement with members of the same biological sex sexual involvement with members of the same biological sex. Now, understand, folks, this is not always involved when someone struggles accepting their biological sex. However, this is often involved, as is clear even from the acronym LGBTQ and so forth. I mean, think about it. Lesbian, gay, and bisexual are the first three words in that acronym. All of those have to do with sexual sin. So much of the gender debate is in fact driven by sexual sin. Now what is this? Well, it includes first of all sexual attraction. Sexual attraction. Contrary to what some, even in the professing Christian community teach, sexual attraction to members of the same biological sex is not morally neutral. It's not innocent. Why? Because it's contrary to God's creative design. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, a woman, and the two of them, man and woman, will become one flesh. That's how God designed it. And so the sexual attraction is sin, even if you don't cultivate it. Why? Why isn't it just a temptation? Because it's more than a temptation. It grows out of James 1.14. It grows out of our lust. It is, it is a desire for something that God has completely forbidden. A sinful desire that comes from our flesh. And just like the sinful desire or attraction that a, a married man might feel towards someone who is not his wife is sin in the same way sexual attraction in this context is sin as well. Secondly, sexual lust. Sexual lust. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is obviously dealing with heterosexual lust, but he makes it very clear that lust in the heart, sexually desiring another person, is sinful. And just as it is true in the case of heterosexual lust, it is also true in the case of 
homosexual lust. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Paul makes this very clear in this passage, Romans chapter 1, verse 26, and I'm going to look at this in a different way in just a moment, so I'm not going to explain it in its context yet. I'll get there. But I just want you to notice the beginning of verse 26, God gave them over to, notice, degrading passions. In other words, the, the lust itself is degrading. He defines, by the way, those passions or those strong desires as those in which women sexually desire and become involved with women and men with men. Notice Paul calls such homosexual desires or passions degrading. The, he, the uh, Greek word means to be in a state of dishonor or shame. Paul is saying homosexual desires dishonor or bring shame to the person who nurses and pursues them. A third expression of this sexual involvement is actual sexual intimacy. Stay here in Romans chapter 1, and now let's read both verses together. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, I don't have time to cover this text in great detail. I did when I taught through Romans. You can go back and listen to that message. But let me just point out to you that Paul here in these two verses is making six statements about homosexuality. First of all, the first three words, for this reason, says that it is an expression of God's wrath, his wrath against paganism. That doesn't mean every person who's tempted with homosexual desires or every person who sins that way is the worst of sinners. It simply means that when a culture, God gives a culture over to homosexuality, it is the fruit of that culture's rejection of the true God as he's revealed himself in creation and their buying into paganism. For this reason, because of their paganism, because they exchanged the true God for false gods, God gave them over to these degrading passions. Secondly, this text says that homosexuality dishonors those who desire and practice it. Notice degrading passions. I already pointed that out. Thirdly, this passage tells us that homosexuality is a sinful choice. Notice verse 26 the women exchanged, don't miss that word, and in verse 27, the men abandoned. Both words imply deliberate action. It's a sinful choice. Now, don't misunderstand. It's possible that some people are born with a sinful propensity, a predisposition toward homosexuality. We don't know for sure, but it may be. And if it is true, it's in the same way that a person is born with a predisposition to anger or a predisposition to lying. The fact that I was born with a propensity toward anger and expressed that in many ways before my conversion doesn't mean that I'm not culpable if I give in to it. It just means I'm more easily tempted to sin in that way. So the temptation to homosexuality may not be a deliberate choice, but dwelling on that temptation, giving into that temptation, enjoying it, acting on it, are all deliberate choices just as with any other sin. A fourth point that Paul makes here is homosexuality is against God's creative design. Notice he uses the expression natural. 
Women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. In the same way, the men also abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Clearly, and I don't need to go into anatomy, you understand this, God designed in creation for men and women to be naturally together in marriage. And this is against God's creative design. Number five, homosexual acts are indecent acts. Notice what he says in verse 27, men with men committing indecent, literally the shameless deed. And then finally, he says that homosexuality comes at a high personal cost. Verse 27, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, we can't be absolutely sure what Paul means there. He may be talking about the psychological effects of this sin. He may be talking about the disease that come, can come with this sin. He may be talking about the homosexuality itself as the penalty. Or he may be talking about the eternal punishment that ensues on those who are unrepentant in their practice of this sin, as with every other sin. Regardless, clearly, he, he is making it clear that this is unacceptable to God. Let's go back to the Old Testament law. Let's start, before we get to the law, let's start in Genesis. I just want, I want to belabor this point because, frankly, the church isn't saying this. The church is ignoring what the Scripture clearly teaches. Go to Genesis chapter 18, verse 20. The Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and notice this, their sin is exceedingly grave. What was their sin? Go over to chapter 19, verse 5. They called out to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have relations with them. What was God's assessment? Verse 13. We are about to destroy this place because their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. By the way, in Jude 7, Jude verse 7, this is Jesus' half-brother writing. He speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, quote, they indulged in gross immorality, end quote. Let's look at the law. Go over to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Again, the word is repugnant, repulsive to God. Why? Because it's contrary to his designed purpose. Look down in verse 24 of Leviticus 18. Do not defile yourselves by any of these sins he's just mentioned, including homosexuality. For by all these sins, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled, for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. These were secular nations that God was taking out of their land. Why? Because of the nature of their sins, including this one, and its nature before God. Notice this text in Leviticus 18 destroys the idea that God only forbids homosexual rape or homosexual prostitution, as some try to make it claim, and allows consensual homosexual relationships. It's crystal clear in verse 22 that all homosexual acts are forbidden. They are an abomination. Now turn over to chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 13. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. 
Now this text, notice, assigns moral culpability in a homosexual relationship to both the active and the passive partner. And it also tells us that in Old Testament Israel, under God's direction, homosexual acts received the death penalty. That was how seriously God took it. What about the New Testament? Turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, Paul writes, but we know that the law is good. He's talking now about the moral law of God of the Old Testament. We just read it. He says, the, the law is good if anyone uses it lawfully. And he goes on to say, it's not in order for you to earn your way into God's favor. You can't do that. Nobody keeps it that well. Instead, verse 9, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. And then he describes them for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers. By the way, that word is, doesn't mean just the person who, who goes into someone's home and kidnaps them, although it's included. It refers to really American slavery because it's kidnapping someone in order to enslave them. And liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul says this was a sin in the Old Testament. It's still a sin against God's moral character and always will be. Now, why do I belabor this? It's because there are those in the Christian community who are doing everything they can to avoid persecution and fit in with a culture and are saying things contrary to this. For example, the current and the former presidents of a large evangelical denomination have gone on public record, both of them, one of them was plagiarizing the other, by the way, when he said it, but both of them have gone on record saying that when God speaks on homosexuality, quote, he whispers, end quote. Folks, I'm sorry. I just have to say, those men will give an account for the Lord and not to me, but they are misrepresenting the God for whom they claim to speak. God didn't whisper at Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't whisper in his law, and he didn't whisper in Romans, and he didn't whisper in 1 Timothy. And we'll see other passages in a moment. There's a third cultural expression of this sin, and that is the affirmation of transgenderism and its sexual sin as morally good. The affirmation of these things as morally good. This is the next step, as I pointed out in the beginning. You understand that there are individuals in the media, on social media, in the entertainment industry who are promoting gender theory and criticizing all who disagree. There are educators at all levels. Parents, beware. Educators at all levels are indoctrinating their students with gender theory. I read an excerpt from a book in the last couple of weeks called The Gender Fairy, in which four-year-olds are told, your parents cannot tell you what gender you are, only you know, and only you have the right and authority to decide. This is happening at all levels. The Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Educational Network has launched a curriculum that they hope will be used in 100,000 middle schools and high schools in the U.S., the curriculum includes a homophobia scale that ranges, this is the homophobia scale now, it ranges from repulsion, pity, tolerance, to full acceptance. Did you hear that? Even full acceptance is still a form of homophobia. These same people argue that the correct attitude that people ought to have begins with support 
but progresses, these are their words, to admiration, appreciation, and a word that essentially means promotion. That's when you've really gotten over your homophobia. When you admire, appreciate, and promote. Businesses are enforcing gender theory through personal pressure on employees by education and employment policies and through political pressure on entities and states. The leaders of large companies are forcing their moral will on states and other entities. Governments are passing laws that make it a crime to refuse to recognize a person's perceived identity gender. All the way, all the way back in 2009, the government of Quebec instituted the Quebec policy against homophobia. Specifically, their policy forbids, listen to this, quote, it forbids affirmation of heterosexuality as a social norm or the highest form of sexual orientation, end quote. So it's not enough to say, okay, you know, they want to make those choices, they can make them. For you to say there's something that's better, something that's higher, is a violation of the law. Where does this come from? Go back to Romans 1. You remember that because of paganism, God three times here in, our, in this text says that God gave them over. In verse 24, he gave them over to sexual sin. In verse 26, he gave the culture over to homosexuality. In verse 28, he adds this, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. What's a depraved mind? A lot of people think that means sinning. No. People have always sinned. People have always committed these sins. What's a depraved mind? Go down to verse 32. Although they know the ordinance of God through the substance of the law written on the heart, Romans 2, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, notice this, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Literally, the Greek text reads this way. This makes it so clear. Listen to this. Not only these things they are doing, but rather also they are approving those who practice. Folks, this is the essence of a depraved mind. A person not only chooses to continue sinning, but affirms sin in himself and others as good. That's what's going on. Those are the cultural expressions, the primary cultural expressions in our day. Now next, number four, let's consider the spiritual foundations. What is the source of this? We've talked about on the societal level, but individually, what are the primary heart issues that lie behind the acceptance of the tenets of gender theory? Let me give you two of them, because I want to be fair in this issue. First of all, one of the issues is experiencing developmental confusion. We live in a fallen world. We live in fallen bodies, and that affects everything, including our our bodies, it affects our perceptions, our minds. Romans 8 says the whole creation groans under the effect of the fall. Sadly, one effect of the fall is that they tell us one person in every 5,000 is born with external reproductive structures that may be ambiguous in their appearance. Not chromosomes, but external structures. Of course, such people require care and compassion and help.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his series, Trending Versus Truth. Tom will have part 10 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, Tom, could you provide some resources for listeners who might be personally struggling with gender identity or have friends or family who are as well? There are several that I found especially helpful as I worked my way through this issue that I would recommend. Gender Ideology by Sharon James is helpful. What Does the Bible Teach About Transgenderism by Owen Strand and Gavin Peacock. Men and Women Equal Yet Different by Alexander Strock and John Piper and Wayne Grudem's book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Women Womanhood. All of those are helpful. If you or someone you know is really struggling with this issue at a personal level, I encourage you to talk with your pastor, with your elders, and get help from them from a scriptural standpoint. Seek out a true biblical counselor, someone who's going to open the Word of God and help you to understand this from God's perspective. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear from you. And if you haven't reached out before, or if you're a first-time listener, we'd like to send you Tom's book, Jesus' High View of Scripture, free of charge. Just subscribe to The Word Unleashed on our website, and we'll mail you a free copy of Tom's book. And don't forget to connect with us on social, at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.